If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Friday, July the 12th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism here at Hoover. My guest today in Hoover's recording studio on the campus of Stanford University is Andrew Roberts. Andrew Roberts is the Roger and Martha Mertz Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also a journalist and broadcaster and the author of a critically acclaimed biography, Churchill Walking with Destiny, which came out last November. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you very much. Churchill. Um, I did a little sleuthing on Winston Churchill via the internet, so I hope this is correct. The Churchill Society lists 43 book-length works by the man in 72 volumes. I went onto Amazon. I looked up Churchill as a biographical subject, 351 listings, including your very fine book. Next year marks 55 years since his passing, 75 years since VE Day. Why the ongoing fascination with this man? Well, actually, funny enough, I think you haven't got quite enough books. Um, the... Uh, um, there have been 1,009 that have been published on, on Churchill since the first one in mm-hmm. 1905 when he was 30 years old. So we have been fascinated by this man for well over a century. And I think it's because of three things. The first is, of course, um, the obvious one, that he saved this country, saved my country, uh, the United Kingdom, from Nazism. Mm-hmm. And uh, that in itself is such a historic um, achievement that I think people will be interested in him, at least Britain's will, um, for for many more centuries. Mm-hmm. The second thing is his uh, leadership. The kind of um, techniques he used, I think, are also things for the ages rather than just for the 1930s and 1940s. Mm-hmm. Um, the various uh, tricks of the trade are that's something I think that are... Um, are again for the uh, for the centuries, and the third thing is that he was, as you mentioned earlier, a writer and a thinker, and um, in a, in a sense, although this sounds rather weird, he was actually a bit of a philosopher too. He uh, he was somebody who thought deeply about the important things in life and had a lot to say about them. So I think his messages um, and his achievements and his um, uh, and his leadership are all things that will keep us interested in this man. I would imagine writing a biography on Churchill, the good news is you have more material at your disposal than possible in terms of what's already been written about the man. On the other hand, there's a challenge, and that is to say something that hasn't been said before about Churchill. That's right, and um, especially as there are 1,009 biographies of him. Luckily, <laughs> uh, over the last eight years, there's been a cornucopia of new sources that have come out about him. Mm-hmm. And I was very fortunate that Her Majesty the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. And um, when you research these diaries, you, uh, which are extraordinary because uh, the King met Churchill every Tuesday of the Second World War, they had lunch together, uh, Churchill trusted the King with all the great secrets, told him what was on his mind, mm-hmm. and the King then wrote down uh, what Churchill said. So we now know really what was on Churchill's mind every Tuesday of the Second World War. On top of that, there have been 41 sets of papers that have been deposited at Churchill College archives in Cambridge since the last major biography of him. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself found the um, verbatim accounts of the War Cabinet six years ago, the, um, the diaries of Ivan Maisky, the Soviet ambassador, uh, from 1932 to 1943, have been um, published over the last five years in 
Moscow. And so there are new sources, new things to say, and um, it, I think, justifies my book, which has something on pretty much every page that has never been published in a Churchill biography before. Uh, explain the meaning of the headline, Walking with Destiny. Um, it comes from his uh, the last paragraph of the first chapter. Uh, I'm so sorry, the um, last paragraph of the last chapter of his first volume of war memoirs, The Gathering Storm. And he was writing about the day on which he became Prime Minister, Friday the 10th of May 1940, when um, the King invited him to Buckingham Palace and appointed him as Prime Minister. Coincidentally, of course, the, f the actual same day that Adolf Hitler unleashed Blitzkrieg on the West, invading Holland and Belgium and Luxembourg. Shortly afterwards, of course, also to invade France. And Churchill wrote of that day, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And it strikes me that it's absolutely essential in understanding Winston Churchill that you appreciate this driving sense of personal destiny uh, that he had. Mm -hmm. um, it's always awkward to ask biographers to, to put their subject in modern times, but if Churchill were looking right now at British political leadership, what would he think? Well, he'd certainly think that the last three years have been an absolute disaster. <laughs> uh, I don't think um, right. anyone apart from l literally the most loyal of Theresa May's loyalists could mm -hmm. have seen the, um, the appalling um, waste of, uh, of effort and time um, that has taken place since the Brexit referendum in June 2016. Um, so uh, you wouldn't have to be Winston Churchill, frankly, to uh, to be able to spot that that is um, a dearth of leadership, which is um, uh, severely damaging my country. Um, I was told by Churchill's daughter, Mary Soames, never to assume that you know what uh, Winston, what in her, in her um, words, Papa would have said under any certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. So you know, it is impossible to uh, to say what Churchill would have thought of anything. However. I'm sure that he would be um, uh, delighted that the um, that the end of of this um, prime minister has finally come, and we're going to have a chance with a new one, mm -hmm. who may be Boris Johnson. Who's going to be Boris Johnson? Going I to be assumed. Yes, the uh, it's it's possible that there's statistically possible that it might not be, but I think right. um, Boris is likely to win two thirds, even perhaps three quarters of the votes for the. Uh, of the Tory party. Which will be announced uh, ten, 10 days from now, I think, on, on the, the 22nd. 22nd. Right. Yes. And then the Queen will um, uh, ask him to be Prime Minister that day, and so he'll go to Buckingham Palace just like uh, Churchill did. Uh, I want to read you a quote from Boris Johnson and uh, get your thoughts on this. And here's what he said, quote, I will set out a vision for Britain as the greatest place on earth, the greatest place to be, the greatest place to live, to raise a family, the greatest place to send your kids to school, the greatest place to breathe clean air. Well, that's a bit of British exceptionalism. Um, we usually well, hear that kind of... It is, of <laughs> but here in the U.S. we have MEGA, Make America Great Again. It yeah. sounds like he is trying to offer you MEGA, Make England Great Again. <laughs> um, I think that hyperbole is a natural part of a politician, mm -hmm. especially when he's uh, right. standing for the, um, for the premiership. Um, I uh, would love it to be true, obviously. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that there are many things that um, Britain is uh, extremely good at. But um, when one listens to that, uh, to that list, uh, it's impossible not to be reminded of um, political hyperbole. Um, I have read accounts of Boris Johnson that call him the next Trump, and I've read accounts of Boris Johnson that call him the next Trump whipping boy. <laughs> well, every British prime minister 
really almost since Lord Salisbury, has been accused of being the American president's whipping boy. Mm -hmm. um, it happened to Blair. It, people forget it, but it actually also happened to Margaret Thatcher. People on the left accused uh, her of being, if there's such a thing as a whipping girl, um, Ronald Reagan's um, uh, sort of uh, lapdog. And um, it goes with the, um, with the territory, frankly. Um, it's not true. I think that um, Boris Johnson, if anything, actually will be more successful at getting on with um, President Reagan, not because he sucks up to him or is a whipping boy, but um, simply because they, um, they do have a certain man in common. Not what people naturally um, uh, think, because uh, Boris is a, is a free, um, he's a believer in free trade, and uh, he is m very much socially um, less conservative than, uh, than Donald Trump. I mean, most British politicians are less conservative than most American politicians, mm -hmm. full stop. But um, uh, I think that there will be a, um, uh, a, a far better personal rapport between the two uh, than there was between um, Mrs. May and, uh, and Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. What do you think the Queen will think of Boris Johnson? Uh, this this will be her, I think, fifteenth prime minister. Fifteenth prime, prime minister, yes, and right. her first being Winston Churchill. In her first being Churchill, yes. And right. uh, so for the the uh, the progression from uh, from Churchill to um, uh, to Boris has been a has been a long one. I think she'll be amused by him. Um, that she obviously knows him anyway because he was mayor of London for eight years at the mm -hmm. time of the Olympics, and so they um, they met um, quite a bit during that. Uh, she will not be unaware of the various. Uh, um, sort of scandals that have uh, that have been around with him, um, but she's uh, she's seen everything, um, and uh, <laughs> she will take uh, she will take as we saw actually with the visitors of, of President Trump to um, to Britain recently, which was a very successful state visit. Um, the Queen is uh, is absolutely expert and professional in all of these um, situations, and uh, I think privately, what she says to Prince Philip about Boris Johnson might be um, wonderful to behold. But uh, in public, she'll do her duty, of course. I believe she saw the movie The Queen. She claims not to have. Oh, she claims not to have. Well, at least her courtiers claim that that um, they uh, they didn't. Do you mean the Queen with Helen Mirren, or do you mean yes, the one Helen with Mirren. Helen Mirren? Because mm -hmm. there's also the Crown, of course, which that was going to be my next question. <laughs> now that she's saying Crown, I was going to ask you if you've seen the Crown, and if so, does it correctly capture the relationship between young Elizabeth and an elderly Winston Churchill? I stopped watching the Crown after three episodes because it was such an abysmal caricature. Uh, that um, of him. And so totally un untrue that um, it's I'm afraid uh, it's just um, I was just appalled what does it get what does it get wrong absolutely everything what does it get right um, it's uh, it seems auto actually automatically to go out of its way to try and get everything wrong Mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine, um, Hugo Vickers, has uh, brought out a little pamphlet. Well, it's not little. It's um, it, it contains one thousand factual errors um, in the uh, in the uh, the first series of The Crown. Uh, he'll probably be writing a sequel for the second series. And uh, so, no, for historians, it's a um, it's laughable. Unfortunately, it is being taken in lots of countries. Uh, I suspect here as well as being overall accurate. Yes. 
Uh, this is a concern here in America, in particular with John and Jackie Kennedy, who are portrayed in The Crown. Kennedy actually physically pushes her around at one point. Well, appalling. Yeah. Right. We, saw, we saw something recently also, um, a show called Churchill in 2017, a, uh, a movie um, where Churchill was played by Brian Cox, at which he at one point um, shouts at uh, Clementine that he doesn't want D-Day to succeed and then throws all the... Uh, in a drunken rage, throws all the uh, crockery on the floor and mm -hmm. smashes all the sort of you know glass and all the rest of it uh, in an attempt to um, impress upon her that uh, he, um, he he wants D-Day to fail. <laughs> it is completely <laughs> and utterly ludicrous. Who does the best Churchill on film? Well, actually, I think Gary Oldman. Gary um, Oldman, the, did. yes, uh, of the of the more recent actors. I think in the past, um, Robert Hardy mm -hmm. was wonderful in the nineteen seventies series, uh, The Wilderness Years. But uh, of the modern ones, I think Gary Oldman completely captures him. Uh, of course, with the help of prosthetics, um, <laughs> with uh, his uh, his face, he's got the growl. He's got the um, the um, uh, sort of glint in his eye and the chuckle in his voice, it, it is Churchill. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the special relationship for a moment, because it's certainly been in the news the past few days with the, um, the goings-on with the British ambassador, uh, now former British ambassador. Uh, two schools of thought on the special relationship. One is that it's in tatters. The other one is just it's in entering a new phase. Yes, well, I think, uh, and it isn't the first time that a British ambassador's had to had to go. In fact, it's the third time uh, since 1856. It's quite clear that you can't have a British ambassador who is persona non grata in the White House. Right. And so it was quite right for Sir Kim uh, Derrick to uh, to resign, and um, and very sensible. What I think should have happened is that he was offered another equally. Uh, well, there isn't an equally good post, but Paris or, or um, uh, UN, perhaps, or something along those lines. So it, um, it wasn't a sort of career-ending um, move. And um, it would have saved face in any way. He's a, he's a highly intelligent man, and he'd be able to do a very good job wherever he was. But um, things being what they are, we obviously have got a leaker at the um, absolute centre of government, which is a very concerning thing. Um, we've already had a leak from the National Security Council earlier this year. So there is something very wrong going on in the civil service, and we've just got to keep our fingers crossed that GCHQ or whoever is able to track down the leaker and, and have him uh, or her um, sacked and prosecuted. But... Um, that doesn't mean that the whole of the special relationship is under is under any kind of threat. It's been around since the word, well, since before Churchill even um, uh, invented the uh, right. the phrase in his Harvard speech in 1943, and it really uh, matters. At least it matters enormously to uh, to us in in Britain. Um, it has so many aspects: financial, commercial, uh, intelligence gathering, of course, our nuclear cooperation. The way in which we work together in the um, in the United Nations and uh, on so many other multilateral places, uh, G7, G20, and the rest of it, that um, the idea that it can be in tatters simply because uh, some leaker has uh, has behaved disgracefully um, is um, is unfair. I think. Uh, let's talk about another Englishman who spent time in Washington, Edward Wood. Mm, yes. Who we've written a book about. My first book. Tell us who he is. Yes, um, Edward Wood um, 
is be- much better known by his title, Lord Halifax, mm-hmm. uh, who was, of course, the Foreign Secretary under Neville Chamberlain at the time of the Munich Agreement and uh, appeasement. And then he became Churchill's Foreign Secretary in 1940. And in December 1940, he... Um, uh, was appointed ambassador to Washington and spent the whole of the Second World War, mm-hmm. the rest of the Second World War, as uh, ambassador. And a very good ambassador, actually. He was, uh, he was extremely good at his job. By the way, in those days, three people saw the cables that he sent back to uh, the Prime Minister, uh, as opposed to the 100 people who, for some reason, are allowed to see them uh, in, in Whitehall. Who were the three? Um, the Prime Minister, the Permanent Undersecretary of the Foreign Office, and the King. Mm-hmm. Much more sensible system. <laughs> you don't yes. get leaks from, uh, from those three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what made Halifax good at his job as investor? Um, he, was a, um, he was actually much better, really, as a diplomat than he was as a politician. Well, he actually had an opportunity. In 1940, he had an opportunity to be prime minister, correct? He did. And, um, uh, to and replace Chamberlain to replace Chamberlain in, and, and become Prime Minister instead of Churchill. But it was clear that Churchill wanted the job. Mm-hmm. There's a, a lot of myth about this, in fact. I cover it very extensively in Chapter 19 of my book. The myth that, um, first of all, uh, Halifax, who later claimed he didn't particularly want to be Prime Minister, uh, and also the myth that uh, Churchill put about that he became Prime Minister because of a long silence on the uh, on the 9th of May 1940, mm-hmm. and um, in which, sort of out of embarrassment, Halifax um, backed away from being Prime Minister and allowed Churchill to be Prime Minister. Um, this is all rot. Uh, it was quite clear, actually, that what Churchill did in the meeting was to demand the Premiership. He had demanded pretty much every every role, every um, job, um, every office that he'd uh, ever been in. And um, he also demanded quite a few roles and offices that he wasn't given. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, uh, it was his uh, insistence on becoming Prime Minister, I believe. And I, I stack up as much of the evidence, but ultimately it must be circumstantial because nobody was taking notes at the time. And the people's um, memories of it um, significantly differ. But nonetheless, I think what happened was that um, the opportunity was there and uh, he grabbed it. Mm. Was Halifax an appeaser? Yes. Uh, he was up until the, um, the Munich Agreement. After the Munich Agreement, he recognised that um, there needed to be a tripwire um, for Hitler, that if he crossed it would um, involve uh, um, a declaration of war. And he set that tripwire on the 1st of April 1939 um, at the Polish frontier. And there were people in the government, including um, Chamberlain, who um, were not convinced about that, who thought that uh, um, we shouldn't go to war over Poland, which we couldn't in any way help. Um, there, was, there was no way of, um, of helping to defend Poland, and so why should we um, uh, go to war over her? But um, Halifax put the opposite point of view, and it was his point of view that prevailed. And Churchill called him the Holy Fox, which is the title of your book. It was a nickname, yes. The, um, he was nicknamed uh, Holy because he was a, a very pious Anglo-Catholic um, and a regular churchgoer. Mm-hmm. And he was um, uh, nicknamed the Fox because he was a huge fox hunting uh, fanatic. He, uh, he, he, he rode to hounds all his life. 
So much has been written and discussed regarding the Churchill-Roosevelt relationship, um, the two men's lifestyles. Uh, uh, I'm always fascinated to read how Churchill would come to the White House and he would operate on Churchill time. He'd stay up late and this would drive poor Eleanor Roosevelt crazy because her husband was not built to stay up late. Uh, so keeping up with Winston was difficult, especially the consumption of goods. By the way, a separate question, how did Winston Churchill manage to live to be 90 years old? If you, yes. read, if, if you read about his diet, <laughs> if you read about the consumption on a daily basis of brandy and champagne, I've, I've seen accounts saying that he may have been in contact, consumed as many as 200,000 cigars, not smoking them, sometimes oh, just 160,000, okay, the, just that. It's the, uh, How the, do you make uh, it to 90 years of life living that lifestyle? Well, you have to remember that as a young man, he was in extraordinarily fit right. and, uh, and healthy. He, um, he won the fencing competition, he won polo competitions, he right. was, uh, he fought on on, uh, on f in five campaigns on four continents, mm -hmm. he was um, he was very fit. It wasn't really until I mean he was in his fifties he was still playing polo, um, which requires a good level of fitness. Um, it was only after that that uh, he started to um, to get sort of rotund. Mm. We don't know what killed his father, um, but his father died at the age of forty five, and Churchill spent all his life thinking that he um, he w was going to die young and um, that was one of the things that drove him on. Uh, his, his mother also um, didn't um, make old bones either so and neither did very many people in his uh, family. Most of his uncles and aunts died in their 50s or early mm -hmm. 60s so, um, so Churchill was driven by this sense that he had to uh, achieve as much as he possibly could as early as, as he could and in the event of course um, uh, ironically enough he lived to be 90 mm -hmm. and um, I think it's important by the way not to exaggerate too much uh, the drinking. He did uh, love to show off about about the fact he was a, a big drinker. Mm -hmm. But uh, as one of his assistant private secretaries and his final private secretary, in fact, told me, um, the um, the whiskey that he drank until late at night uh, was uh, mouthwash. They called it. There was an <laughs> awful lot of soda and very little whiskey in it. As one of his friends uh, said that, uh, and this this slightly undermines what I've just uh, just told you. Mm -hmm. I mean, because he did drink champagne at lunchtime. He drank some white wine with the first course, red wine with the main course, and then would have a glass or two of brandy. And this was lunchtime, uh, and he'd do much the same thing in the evenings, and then carry on drinking these mouthwash whiskies and sodas until about three o'clock in the morning. And uh, uh, C. P. Scott, the uh, journalist, said that Winston Churchill couldn't have been an alcoholic because no alcoholic could have drunk that much. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fascinating, not just the longevity, but also to live that lifestyle, but be functional every day. It's not, like, it's not like you're waking up at 10 o'clock in the morning and hungover and unable to work. He gets up every day, and he's writing, and he's dictating, and he's being active. There's no um, day um, on the, in the whole of the 2,194 days of the Second World War um, that, that he, was, um, he was drunk. Uh, apart from the 7th of March 1944 and on that occasion what they did after the meeting which had gone on till 3 o'clock in the morning uh, was to hold the same meeting the next morning as though the last one hadn't happened. <laughs> uh, is there any bit of a Mark Twain factor with Winston Churchill and that Mark Twain is credited with saying a lot of things that he never said? Yes, an awful lot and I'm afraid some of them are, are really good things. I'm, he never said... Um, my coldest winter is my summer in San Francisco, for example. He never said this. No, and he never said... Um, 
uh, if you're going through hell, keep going. Yes. And he never told um, Lady Astor that were she to poison his uh, coffee, he would drink it. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid there's a there's a very very good book uh, called Churchill in His Own Words by the historian Richard Langworth. And um, Richard has has a I think it's about twenty page. Um, Red Herring's chapter at the end of his book of, uh, mm-hmm. of all the things that Churchill is credited as, as having said but didn't. He was one of those very fortunate people, Noel Coward and, and um, Somerset Maugham and others are um, uh, to an extent I think possibly even Oscar Wilde who um, are known as wits and therefore uh, witty remarks accrete to them um, even uh, if they didn't say them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Churchill's born in 1874, correct? Yeah. So if my math is correct, uh, the year 2024 will be the sesquicentennial of his birthday. Right. Let's talk about um, how Churchill fits into British history in terms of what British children are learning about Winston Churchill. Yes. Here in America, we have a very long conversation about political correctness, and we like to take our leaders, and we like to revisit our leaders. Somebody who is revered, somebody who shows up on currency, somebody who's on the side of a mountain, suddenly we take a different view of that person, and we look at the dark side of the person, and maybe we look at their attitudes toward race or towards gender or towards inclusiveness, and suddenly we don't admire them so much. Tell me a bit about how Churchill is taught in British schools. Well, he's not. He's not. Um, no, he's not taught. In the um, curriculum until recently, uh, you could get through your entire schooling in Britain and only learn about Winston Churchill for 14 seconds. That's how long he was on a video that school children have to watch about the Second World War. Otherwise, it's, um, it, he's not taught. And that's why, in a recent survey of um, a couple of thousand British teenagers, 20% of them said that they thought that Winston Churchill was a fictional character. Uh, 47% thought that Sherlock Holmes was a real person and 53% thought Eleanor Rigby was. Um, so there's a, uh, a proper disastrous, in my view, disconnect between uh, what children should be learning and what they are learning. He is arguably the most important man in the 20th century. Certainly the greatest Briton who ever lived as well. And the greatest Briton who lived. How could he not be a part of the curriculum? Because um, the curriculum has uh, been taken over frankly, by determinists and um, uh, sort of people who believe in the Whig view, uh, people who believe, with that, uh, along with T.S. Eliot, that vast impersonal forces are what drive history rather than individuals. And um, it's a deliberate attempt on behalf of the educational establishment and others to, um, to sort of de-heroize, um, if there's such a word, our history. And um, I, uh, um, I'm dismayed by this because it seems to me bad history apart from anything else because individuals do matter in history. And one can see from the lives of uh, another person I wrote about, Napoleon, mm-hmm. um, and certainly uh, Churchill, but also the, um, the evil people in history as well, Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin being classic examples, that the decisions they make um, are vital very often. And uh, so to, um, to assume that all historical um, movements and events and actions and po- progress come as a result of vast impersonal forces, I just think is, is quite literally wrong. So you're telling me there's a young generation of Brits growing up right now who don't know about Winston Churchill and therefore really don't understand the struggle of World War II? 
Um, well, they talked about Hitler. This is the interesting thing. They do understand about the struggle of World War II because um, they are, it's called, the nickname in England is From Henry to Hitler. So our history, um, our history jumps from the Tudors to Adolf Hitler without the intervening Stuarts or Hanoverians. You can literally get through your schooling without knowing anything about George I, Second, Third, or Fourth. Um, but you are taught the minutiae of... Um, of uh, the um, uh, the Führer's rise to power, for example, mm -hmm. um, which is important, and of course everybody should. But I I've never been able to understand how you can put things in context, a proper historical context, if you just suddenly leave out a century or two. So there's no discussion of Victoria. Very little, um, a, a little bit because um, you know she was a reigning uh, queen, and, mm -hmm. that, and that therefore is. Uh, is the concentration is is on her on her sex rather than on the things that happened in her reign, uh, which are also I think is a is a ridiculous way to um, mm -hmm. to teach history. Um, it's a very um, uh, it's a very controversial issue as you can imagine. And things have got a little bit better when Michael Gove was education secretary. He very much tried to bring back chronology, uh, a knowledge of dates which I think is also absolutely essential to understanding any kind of narrative in history. Um, and uh, he did as best as he could, but he was up against what he called the blob, which is the educational establishment, the uh, teaching unions, and uh, worst of all, the um, Department of Education. Wow. So if there's no Victoria, there's limited Victoria, there's limited conversation then of the British Empire? No, no, the British Empire is, pre is presented as a uniformly bad thing. Um, it's um, and, and that fits into the Henry to Hitler because the British Empire was started effectively under Henry VIII right. and, um, and it ended soon after the Second World War and is presented as being almost as evil as the empire that Adolf Hitler was trying to create in, uh, in Eastern Europe. So Portrayed as a suppression of... Just in all the... Um, uh, I mean, they're taught that the British Empire is entirely exploitative. It's the Marxist theory of empire. Entirely exploitative, um, produced nothing at all of any uh, value or worth, and was um, uh, and it was a, a great day when, when it uh, was uh, ultimately destroyed. One of my favorite movies um, came out about 30 years ago. It's called Hope and Glory. Yes, I remember a, that. that and it's about a British family that yeah. is caught up in the Blitz, yeah. and um, they're actually, uh, the father has to go off and serve, and the rest of the family, the uh, wife and the daughters, are sent out to the country with um, her, her father yes, to with stay away from the danger. It's a hilarious And the grandfather has this wonderful line. He's yeah. surrounded by women and one little boy, but it's mostly women, and it's just they drive him crazy. And his line is, I have no friends, only relations. <laughs> <laughs> did Winston Churchill have friends? He really did, yes. He, was a, he had a fantastic capacity for, for friendship. Um, his friends actually came to his uh, aid. He, ha he had a club called The Other Club, um, which uh, met every fortnight in the Savoy when Parliament was sitting. Mm -hmm. And it didn't just have politicians, it had people from throughout uh, society who were friends of his. And, um, and when the, the, the day dawned in May 1940 that uh, uh, Chamberlain was about to fall, of the six, sorry, of the seven major speeches in the Norway debate that uh, brought down Chamberlain and, uh, and effectively made Churchill Prime Minister, of those seven speeches, six were made by members of the other club. And uh, so his friends came to his, uh, his and Britain's um, 
assistance in his hour of need. Mm -hmm. But yes, he was he was a great um, uh, man for friendship. His friendship with F. E. Smith, um, Lord Birkenhead, and with uh, Brendan Bracken and Prof Professor Lindemann were absolutely key to really understanding what kind of a man he was. But there's a contrast here. On the one hand, you're telling me there, there's a social Winston Churchill, a man of friends, but there's also Churchill, the loner, if you will, Churchill who paints, who wants solitude, Churchill who struggles with what the black dog, as he called it, depression. Well, I don't agree with that. You don't I, agree no, with that? No, no. I have never um, believed in this um, theory that he had black dog. He only uh. used to, he only in his whole life ever mentioned black dog once. Mm -hmm. And that was when he was um, talking to, in July 1911, he was writing to his wife, Clementine. Right. And it was a time when the phrase was used by Edwardian matrons and governesses to explain their ill-tempered children. Right. Um, he never took a day, I mean, dep manic depression, which is what um, Black Dog is, is a debilitating illness, of course, and yet he never took a single day off um, the, he, he chaired the Defence Committee of the War Cabinet 900 times during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. You simply can't do that if you're suffering from, from manic depression. This is what's interesting about the man since he has such a long and vast life. Um, I have seen movies just on his early years in the Boer War and such. Uh, HBO several years ago did a movie called The Gathering Storm, based on the book but also based on Churchill. Uh, during the 1930s, and it focuses on the depression, and it focuses on his relationship with his wife, and shows you a man who's struggling. Then you see uh, the Gary Oldman movie, which is you know at Ascented Churchill. You see the the Crown, which would have you show Churchill's later lives. It's it seems um, we keep taking little snippets out of his life, and maybe that's the challenge here. You see a snippet of his life over a certain decade, and you try to make a generalization of the man just based off that one representation. Well, that's right, and like everybody else, he um, he changed. You mm -hmm. know, the great thing about Churchill, one of the great things about him is that although he made terrible mistakes, blunder after blunder, mm -hmm. got so many things wrong, got women's suffrage wrong and the black and tans in Ireland and Gallipoli the education and, crisis, yeah. certainly Glipley, that was his worst mistake of right. all, um, the, um, the um, gold standard and so on. But the great thing was about Churchill was that he was, he is a developing figure and he learned from his mistakes. And uh, the one you mentioned, Gallipoli, he, uh, he never once in the Second World War, Gallipoli was of course the great disaster in the First World War, but in the Second World War, he never once overruled the Chiefs of Staff. Uh, when they all three agreed on something, he never overruled them, as he had done in the Gallipoli um, tragedy of the First World War. So this is a man who is um, a, uh, a sort of continuing and evolving uh, figure. Uh, does Churchill ever, point, ever, at any point, ever sort of put himself on a couch and talk about himself in very personal ways? All He's, the time. <laughs> all the time? <laughs> all the time. Really? Every, yeah. Every uh, eulogy he gives uh, to his friends is essentially about himself. Most of the essays that he wrote in, uh, in um, Great Contemporaries is, uh, are re references to himself. Uh, in The River War, he writes about... Um, uh, about the Mahdi in words that mm -hmm. are clearly to do with himself. If you um, if you read between the lines of uh, many of his thirty seven books, uh, Winston Churchill is writing about uh, about Winston Churchill. Fascinating. Would he adjust to politics in this day and age? Would he adjust to having to sit down, especially in America, sitting down with the likes of a People magazine and talking about your feelings and talking about your your own human interest. Yeah, he'd be very good at that. He would I be. think he'd also be very good at tweeting. 
Um, that's another thing. A lot of his best lines can be fitted into 280 characters or fewer. Um, there's a marvellous moment when he was uh, shouted at at the House of Commons. He was making a speech and a Labour member shouted rot mm -hmm. at him. And uh, Churchill replied immediately, I thank the Honourable Member for telling us what's in his mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> those kind of, um, those kind, kind of witticisms, which would fit, as I say, into a tweet very nicely. I think we, he, we have absolutely millions of, uh, of Twitter followers, yes. Would he then in some way relate to Donald Trump in terms of social media, or would he just look at Donald Trump and just wonder, my goodness, what have the Americans done? No, gosh, no. I mean, he, if he were British Prime Minister, he would get on with Donald Trump. It's part he of the job of, of being a British Prime Minister, a good one anyhow. Um, I think he would immediately find things that he had in common with him and would uh, accentuate the positive, as it were. It's, um, he, was, he was a fine diplomat in that sense. And also, um, I think Donald Trump is somebody who, um, who is learning on the job in the same way that Churchill did. He, uh, he makes far fewer, I mean, he still, still of course, says things that are completely uh, outrageous on a very regular basis, especially at his three o'clock in the morning tweets. But actually, um, I think he's, he's behaving um, as president much more presidentially than uh, he was as a candidate. And he seems to have, um, have had some success in foreign policy and the economy, which um, uh, very few of his detractors would have predicted for him. I assume that um, Boris Johnson's announced the winner on July 22nd. The president will pick up the phone and call him. I would have thought pretty much um, uh, the moment that um, Boris is coming down in the car yes. from Buckingham Palace to Downing Street, yes. <laughs> There'll be a phone call. What do you think is the next step in the relationship after that? Do you think it's Johnson coming to Washington? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, should be, it should be right at the top of his, um, of his first uh, meetings. And, um, and they'll have a lot to discuss, you know, uh, because he will be plunged into the Brexit crisis right. um, the, the day after. There's a very good chance, actually, that there's going to be a vote in the House of Commons, a confidence vote in the House of Commons to try and bring his premiership down after only one day. And um, then we uh, are going to be plunged into the question of uh, deal or no deal. The whole of the Irish backstop is going to be debated in Brussels all over again. Uh, and if we don't get it, and the noises that Brussels are making, it make it pretty clear that Macron certainly doesn't want to give it to us. Um, that means that we're going to um, uh, leave on WTO, uh, World Trade Organization, terms. And that will require a certain degree, a huge amount of leadership from Boris, but a certain degree of um, sacrifice, because there's going to be dislocation in the economy. Nothing like, by the way, I think, as bad as Project fear Mark II has been making out to mm -hmm. us. Nothing like that at all. I think the fifth largest economy in the world is going to be able to buy its own fresh fruit and vegetables and, uh, and medicine, for example. However, obviously there's going to be dislocation. And the question will be whether or not uh, Boris will be able to uh, persuade the British people that that is worth undergoing in order to regain their independence and sovereignty. Where is the future of British political leadership coming from? Is it the young men and women playing on the fields of Eton and schools like that these <laughs> days, or, is, or are we seeing the beginning of a more populist rise of politicians in Britain? Um, the, the future of the Brexit party, I think, will possibly give us an answer to that. It could just um, disappear the minute that we get Brexit. I mm -hmm. think that's what an awful lot of people are, are thinking. Um, if not... 
it could um, it could really rile up um, British politics, not just on the right but also on the left, because. Um, with Labour now having embraced a second referendum as part of its policy, that's tremendously unpopular in a lot of um, northern and midland cities. And um, we are also seeing, uh, of course, a huge, still a huge amount of excitement on the extreme left. Jeremy Corbyn um, and uh, the momentum, um, uh, what's called momentum, which is his sort of uh, Praetorian guard of supporters. J Jeremy Corbyn being your version of Bernie Sanders. Uh, no, he's far to the left of Bernie Sanders. Far to the left of yes, Bernie Sanders. Yes, absolutely. He's a proper Marxist-Leninist. He says so pub publicly. Uh, he um, never fails to um, uh, commend uh, Marx and his works to, um, uh, to people. He hasn't ever once resiled from... Um, no. Uh, from Karl Marx, which I don't think but, even but Bernie Sanders. Bernie did. Bernie did honeymoon in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so we've definitely got our own, um, our own little, um, little, um, you know, local difficulty, should I say? Interesting. Uh, so let's talk again about uh, Churchill and the uh, sesquicentennial. So you give a lot of talks about Churchill. You've been interviewed constantly. What do people want to know about Winston Churchill when they talk to you? Um, much the same things that you've asked. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the the key uh, issues. Um, his stance on Europe is a very important one. I think that that comes up an awful lot, uh, as in you know what would Winston have voted in the Brexit referendum, which is mm -hmm. impossible to say for obvious reasons. But nonetheless, it is very important that um, one appreciates that he was a, one of the great progenitors of the European movement. He was the father of the European movement. He came up with the mm -hmm. phrase, let Europe unite. He never wanted to see, as he put it, Teuton fight Gaul ever again in his lifetime. He'd lost too many friends in the First World War and indeed the Second World War mm -hmm. for that. However, when you read the, pa read the speeches uh, that he made at The Hague and Strasbourg and Zurich and so on, you see that at no point does he ever suggest that the United Kingdom should be part of this European project. It should be a friend, it should be an ally, it should be a supporter. Uh, he has lots of various prepositions um, that he uses with regard to um, Britain's relationship with Europe, but never a member. And so um, that, I think, is, uh, is quite telling. Can you imagine how frustrated he would be if he were in the studio right now, besides not just putting up with my pedestrian questions, <laughs> but this is a non-smoking campus. And yes, if really, we, the entire campus, not even outside. And if the three of us were to walk over to the Stanford Mall, you cannot smoke because it's a high-density area. Palo Alto passed this ordinance a, a year ago. Wow. If we walked over to University Avenue to take him out to lunch or dinner, you can't smoke in there because it's high-density. You'd be a little flustered being in California. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, when, when he entered California in 1929, when, of course, you had prohibition, yes. um, he was given a bottle of champagne by the immigration official as he crossed <laughs> the border. I very much doubt that that, that that would happen today either. Not quite the same, but if you did have him in the studio right now, if you had an hour of his time, what would you like to talk to him about? Actually, I would like to talk to him about his sense of destiny. Mm -hmm. um, I'd ask him about uh, the idea of him walking with destiny. He wasn't a Christian, um, right. but he did believe in the Almighty, uh, an Almighty that had saved him from incredibly no, a huge number of incredibly close brushes with death in his life. Right. And, um, and I like to talk to him about how psychologically he came up with this, uh, this sense of his own private and personal driving sense of destiny. Uh, and the extent to which that was predicated on the sense that he had been specially marked out by being saved again and again from accident after accident in war after war as well. 
um, and, uh, and, to, and to plumb that a bit. I'd love to know more about his views on Napoleon, uh, who obviously also had a sense of destiny and had, had a great driving ambition like Churchill. Um, to, to, Napoleon was a hero of Churchill's. He wanted to write a book a biography of Churchill, which in my view is the, one of the great unwritten books of history. I would love to have read that. Um, and so that, I think, would be very interesting. Um, it's, a, um, uh, it's something that I would right now allow you to bring out a little guillotine and chop off my left finger in order to be able to have the opportunity <laughs> to do. Um, so he, he admired Napoleon. Yes. Um, he recognised, of course, that he was a hegemonistic threat to, yes. um, to the balance of power in Europe and that therefore he had to be fought. Um, but he also saw him as a, an equalising figure, as somebody who was um, bringing the best aspects of the French Revolution to the rest of Europe. Now, of course, he was bringing them at the point of a bayonet, but nonetheless, um, uh, Churchill admired that and called him the greatest man of action in Europe since Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. Um, so whom did Churchill admire? Who, who influenced him in terms of... I mean, Napoleon obviously was an influence on him. Napoleon certainly was. Um, his own great ancestor, John Churchill, first Duke of Marlborough, mm-hmm. was, a, um, was a very important influence. He was, of course, born in Blenheim Palace, the grandson of the Duke of, uh, of Marlborough. Right. And so he looked back to his great ancestor and admired and, and um, almost worshipped him. And, of course, his ancestor had prevented Louis XIV of France from dominating Europe in the wars of Spanish succession. So so he saw his ancestor as a um, precursor of exactly what he was going to do um, with Adolf Hitler. He admired uh, Georges Clemenceau very much, um, and one can see in his um, We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech of the 4th of June 1940, echoes of the speech that Clemenceau made about fighting before Paris, inside Paris, and behind Paris in uh, November 1917. And, um, and Church was actually sitting in the Chamber of Deputies in Paris to hear that speech. And uh, so that had a profound effect on him. He um, admired King Alfred, as we can see from his wonderful book, uh, The History of the English-Speaking Peoples. He was um, somebody who um, quoted Edmund Burke a good deal and uh, admired William Pitt and William Pitt's war speeches as a, um, as a um, template for his own. In the First World War, he very much admired David Lloyd George, but uh, that dropped off um, a good deal, especially once Lloyd George had met Hitler in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was not a man, and he admired his own father. Um, who, despite his, his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, an aloof, disdainful, uh, very tough man, who um, treated his son, Winston, with disdain bordering on contempt and wrote horrible letters, letters that no father should ever write to any son. And yet he did um, admire him. And when his father died at the age of 45, uh, Churchill wrote his two-volume biography. He sought out his father's friends. He... Um, he adopted his father's speaking stance and quoted his father a lot in speeches and called his own son Randolph. Um, so, so he too was a was a hero, despite the way that his father had treated him. Um, tell me a bit about children's uh, about Churchill's offspring. Well, that's his, his sons and daughters, and yes. it's it sounds to me it's it's funny we're just we're on the twentieth anniversary of uh, John F. Kennedy Jr.'s uh, death. And uh, apparently Jacqueline Kennedy later in her life would say that she regretted his being named after his father, that it was just too much of a weight. 
Yes, um, and of course, um, uh, Winston Churchill's grandson was called Winston. Mm -hmm. And uh, my friend Randolph Churchill, who is the young Winston's son, um, and therefore Sir Winston Churchill's uh, great grandson, right. um, broke the um, uh, broke this family tradition and had uh, and called his own son Jack. Um, after, in fact, um, Winston Churchill's younger brother, because going through, he knew from his father's experience that going through life, um, being called Winston Churchill, is a um, is is just too much to um, to ask of uh, of anyone really, and he didn't, he didn't want his son to be saddled with the same um, the same name as his father. And he's not a, is he Winston Spencer with a numeral at the end yes, of his name? Yes. What's what's the numeral? Um, Oh, I see. With a numeral, no, no, no he no. doesn't have a numeral, but he is he is Spencer uh, okay. Churchill, exactly, and um, and I think that's very sensible. You know, can you imagine trying to uh, book a table in a restaurant and somebody asks you your name and you Churchill say, table for you two? Say, you say Winston Churchill. <laughs> you're, you're you're inviting uh, a bit of um, ribaldry, really, aren't you? That is true, but it, it, it's a little analogous to the Roosevelt children as well. Franklin Roosevelt had several sons and, and daughters, and um, none of them really rose to great heights in American society. Actually, one son did come out to California and I think served in Congress and ran for the governor, I believe, at one point, but nobody certainly matched their father. Well, it's it's um, a lot to ask, and it's not just true of politics, of course. You see it a lot in show business as well and uh, and the entertainment industry. Mm. Uh, having a having a Growing up with a famous name... Right. Um, is a very difficult thing to do. Having said that, Winston Churchill himself did it, of course, because his father was Lord Randolph, who was one of the most famous um, and effective politicians of Victorian England. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think there will be more sentiment toward Churchill as the sesquicentennial uh, approaches, or is the sesquicentennial something Great Britain just won't pay attention to as opposed to, say, the events of 1940? I really haven't given it any thought. You're the first person to mention it. Um, uh, of course, it's true. He's going to be uh, 150 years old in uh, in three years' time. But um, I'm afraid it's completely impossible for me to predict what's going to happen in, in three years' time. Right. I wonder. It, it'll be very interesting to see. I but mean, the the. Uh, the interest in Churchill has not in any way uh, declined over the last few years, um, even though we've uh, got the 75th anniversary of uh, D-Day and yes. the, the greatest generation are um, it, to a very de great degree no longer with us. Um, nonetheless, more and more people are visiting Chartwell, Churchill's lovely home in Kent. Mm -hmm. um, you have um, very generously named a warship after Winston Churchill, which is something that you don't do for non-Americans. Uh, I mean, of course, he was half American himself, and I'm sure that helped. But um, nonetheless, there are... Um, um, if the sales of my book are anything to go by and the numbers of translations of it around the world and so on is anything to go by, um, there has certainly been no drop-off of interest in uh, Churchill at all in recent years. If anything, the exact opposite. I mean, the Gary Oldman movie, of course, uh, was a huge success and won an Oscar and so on. So right. I, think, uh, I think he's still very much with us. You can take these commemorations and do one of two things. You can either be very nostalgic. So if you're in Great Britain, you can be nostalgic about the events of 75 years ago and reflect on what a great country we have and what great traditions. Or you can also use it as a teachable moment for the times in which we live. And this is what I'm curious about with Churchill. I'd like your thoughts on this. We'll close out with this. On the occasion of his 150th birthday, in terms of teachable lessons of Churchill that apply to today, what would you apply from that man's life into today, given the relationship, given the special relationship and the status of that, given Britain's place in the world, given the general cause of fighting for freedom in the world? I think, it's, uh, I think several things. Um, 
I think, firstly, the um, sense of the English-speaking peoples is a very important one. He saw it as his um, primary legacy once the British Empire was clearly um, uh, collapsing mm -hmm. um, in the post-war period. And he um, told his, um, his cabinet it, when he resigned in April 1955, never be separated from the Americans. And, um, of course, needless to say, uh, within a year, Anthony Eden had started to separate us mm -hmm. <coughs> during the Suez Crisis, and, uh, and so he wasn't listened to. But overall, I think the, um, the way in which, uh, when Britain and America work together, and we're going to have to work together uh, even more closely, I think, in the future than, than perhaps um, quite a lot of the past, because the threats coming from Russia and China and Iran and so on right. are, are, um, are just as um, uh, dangerous as anything we've seen in the post-war period. And so so that's, I think, uh, one of his great legacies, which, uh, which we should um, revere, really. The second is um, his extraordinary foresight, the way in which before the First World War, Second World War, and after the Second World War with regard to Soviet um, imperialism in Eastern Europe and so on, he was able to show such foresight, he was able to, um, uh, to, to predict what the dangers were going to be. And I think that's something that, um, that statesmen need to be able to do. And then there's just the sheer moral courage. Uh, that's also something that, um, that political leaders are always going to need. He had this incredible physical courage, of course, but equal to that was his moral courage, the capacity to be shouted down in the House of Commons and uh, nearly deselected from his um, from his parliamentary seat after the Munich Agreement and ridiculed and, and attacked and lambasted in the press and not to change uh, just simply because an opinion poll um, showed that what he was saying was unpopular. Because if he believed it and he had a, a proper... Um, uh, policy to put forward, which in his case, of course, was increased defence expenditure against Hitler, especially in the air. Um, ultimately, when he was proved right, um, the people and the naysayers and the people that his detractors um, actually wound up being his greatest supporters. So I think in all three of those things, there are lessons for leaders, not just of the 1930s and 40s, but lessons that will last forever. And is there anyone out there right now you see who has this stuff, the what made Winston Churchill great? Um, one has to remember, of course, that you do need a world war for it. Yes. Um, and Hitler, um, without Hitler, there would have been no Prime Minister Churchill. It uh, did require that kind of level of, um, of catastrophe for Churchill to become, um, become Prime Minister. And you see it very, very rarely in peacetime. Um, I saw it as a, as a young man in Margaret Thatcher. Mm. Uh, there was something inherently Churchillian about her. Um, I've just written a little book that's going to be published in November called Leadership in War, and one of the chapters is on Margaret Thatcher and the Falklands War, where she was very much channeling her inner Churchill. But um, overall, I think it's a, a very um, elusive, uh, elusive attribute. Final, final question, and uh, I appreciate your time. Um, I was watching the spectacle of the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox playing a baseball game in London, which was fascinating on many levels um, to see how they Where took... Whereabouts in London? 
in the stadium, in the Olympic Stadium. Olympic Stadium. What they had to do is they had to reconfigure what is a soccer pitch and turn it into a baseball field, which means they had to find special dirt and grass. They had to build a pitcher's mound. They had to import foul poles. Um, they had to change dimensions of the park. Uh, apparently the aerodynamics were a little funny. Yeah. Uh, pitchers could not throw breaking balls the way they liked. Baseballs yeah. traveled great distances. As a result, there's a lot of offense. Uh, what caught my attention was this, and I hope you don't think this is a frivolous question, but <laughs> there's a tradition in, uh, in baseball for a mascot race during the seventh inning stretch. This uh, is very popular in Washington, D.C., where they take these big, giant American president characters and they run them around the outfield track to see who wins. And so it's Herbert Hoover <laughs> and Teddy Roosevelt and Tom Stresson. They did this in London. And the participants, Churchill was in the race. These are very big, tall, giant puppets, obviously, but yeah, actually human beings inside, but running around is gigantic. No, I get the picture. I very much get the picture. And I, I do like this yeah. question, so I'm really looking forward to uh, working out where this one's going. Oh, we're, we're getting to the point here. So there was a Churchill running around. There was a Henry VIII. There was a Freddie Mercury. Because, of course, American audience, you know, everyone's seen Bohemian Rhapsody. And Freddie won the race. But here is the question in a very roundabout way. If there is such a thing as a Mount Rushmore of British politics... You're putting Churchill on the side of that mountain. Undoubtedly. Who are the other three people on that mountain with him? Um, gosh, that's a very good question. I would put Benjamin Disraeli, mm -hmm. um, a, uh, a giant of the 19th century, um, a, uh, a, a truly extraordinary and remarkable figure. Um, I would also put William Pitt the Younger, who uh, saw us through the most dangerous parts of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, we could have been invaded, and um, and luckily, due to him and Admiral Nelson, we uh, we weren't. And so that's a pretty key key figure. And then I'd probably put Queen Elizabeth the first, mm. either Queen Elizabeth the first or Margaret Thatcher. One of one of them, I think, comes uh, comes next on the British Mount Rushmore. Uh, they were both um, truly remarkable English women, and uh, uh, and leaders in the best possible sense. So um, so there you are. It's a lovely idea. I like the idea of an English Mount Rushmore. I think it's a little bit more, um, uh, shall we say, um, uh, grand than um, people running around a football stadium we need dressed to, up. We need, to, we need to find a mount for you to do this on. That's the challenge. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. No, it's funny you mentioned uh, Thatcher's maybe being the fourth in that group. Um, a lot of Americans who are fond of Ronald Reagan think Reagan should be on Rushmore. And then the pushback as well. Maybe if you did a second Rushmore, he certainly gets in the group of the next four. Have you? But you do have space. When I visited Mount, Mush yes. around, uh, Mount Rushmore, I, I noticed that there is certainly space for one or perhaps two of them before you get into the before the rock starts to yes. uh, uh, to, to to recede backwards. Uh, I'd be very much in favour of a Reagan there. I think he is a giant. I think his victory of uh, over com Soviet communism was um, amongst the top three things that America's done for civilization. And, um, yeah, I, I, I support that in an instance. The funny thing is that a lot of things have been named after Ronald Reagan that he probably wouldn't care for. The airport in Washington, D.C., ironically, a man who liked getting out of Washington. So, <laughs> Well, you, used, you need it to get out of Washington, too. As well as getting in. Uh, a gigantic building in downtown Washington, a big, giant commerce building, the Ronald Reagan building. A man who was not a fan of large government. Here's a gigantic building in Washington named after him. Kind of funny. Uh, so maybe Rushmore is more, uh, more appropriate for him. Well, maybe you put him on your... Currency, I'm told that you're going to be trying to rub out um, uh, one of your presidents, and um, so you could stick him on whichever dollar bill it was that um, you 
expel poor old, is it Thomas Jefferson you're trying to get rid of? I was just thinking about this the other day. There's Thomas Jefferson. I, a lot of my family went to the University of Virginia, so I'm very much a, a Jefferson sympathist. Um, yeah, there's a movement to push him off the $2 bill. Well, my next um, book is a biography of George III. It's going to be called George III, Last King of America. And so I'm not a uh, Jefferson loyalist at no. all because of the things that he said about George III in the Declaration of Independence, calling him a tyrant and so on. Um, so, uh, so overall, I, I think I'm going to be a Reaganite on this one. So I conclude that Winston Churchill would have the confidence and the humility to be willing to have his face put up on a British rush war. <laughs> I think he's been accused of an awful lot of things. Humility was never one of them. <laughs> Andrew Roberts, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much indeed. I really enjoyed it too. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. In this particular instance, there's a special relationship between the United States of America and Great Britain. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Andrew Roberts and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. I mentioned his biography in the beginning of this podcast. I'll mention again Andrew Roberts writing about Winston Churchill. The title of the book is Churchill Walking with Destiny. You can certainly find that on Amazon.com. You can find a whole slew of works, including his book on Halifax, his book on Napoleon. Please go there. Andrew Roberts also has a website. It is www.andrew-roberts.net. That is www.andrew-roberts.net. He is also on Twitter, and it's not an easy Twitter handle, but I'll give it to you. It is at a Roberts underscore Andrew. That Twitter handle again is at a Roberts underscore Andrew. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.